Let's open the Word of God to Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah chapter 32. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, including Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah 32 and its 20 verses describe Hezekiah's excellent reign and how it brought Judah a righteous revival by God's blessing of his spirit and how the women of Judah were warned again like they had been in chapter 3. The first four verses describe Hezekiah and his reformation of the state and the church. The next four verses describe Hezekiah's reformation of the character of the nation, especially in matters of charity. Verses 9 through 14 are the warning to women. And the last six verses, 15 through 20, are the description of God's Spirit coming upon the nation in its revival and reviving it and reversing its course in many different ways. I hope that I can make these 20 verses precious to you. Isaiah 32 has verses in it that we have appealed to before, but its overall theme may have missed you or you missed it. And I want to give you that today and hope that in so doing, the individual verses take on greater meaning. When we come to a chapter like this, and let me have a few minutes to tell you what has to be done. When we come to a chapter like this that is relatively obscure, I say obscure because the king in verse 1 could be King James, could be Cyrus, could be Jesus, could be Hezekiah, could be just about anyone. We have to set a context for the chapter, and once we do that, then its parts become relatively easy for us to interpret. The chapter has no stated internal proof as to what events are foretold by its prophecies and warning. For comparison, the last time we were in Isaiah, which was three weeks ago from right now, we had chapters 30 and 31. Each chapter, 30 and 31, had the name Assyria in it. Each chapter, 30 and 31, had the name Egypt in it. And so we immediately knew exactly what was under consideration. The threat of Assyria under Sennacherib against Judah under Hezekiah and the weakness of the Jews looking for help in a confederacy with Egypt. Simple. We don't have that luxury here. So we have to work harder. And harder work has been done. If we look ahead to chapter 34, which will be next Sunday, the Lord willing, Idumea is identified there. Basra is identified there. That is the name of the country, nation, and the name of a city of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the arch enemies of Jacob, Israel, and the Jews. And so we have that benefit. When you look at commentaries for this chapter, they range from Assyria to Babylon to Greece, Antiochus, Epiphanes, to Rome, to the time of the Messiah, to the Reformation and the Protestant churches, and to the Millennium. And so a decision has to be made. What kind of a context am I going to give Isaiah chapter 32? The chapter lacks any signs for Babylon, because under Babylon the temple was destroyed, they were taken into captivity, there was a regathering, there was a rebuilding, and there was no spoil taken from Babylon, like there is spoil described in chapter 33, which goes along with chapter 32. 
as they're both considering the same thing, just in a different way. All that is described in this chapter of 32 is consistent with what we have learned in 31 chapters so far about Hezekiah and leading Judah against the assault of the Assyrians and the revival that took place upon the repulsion of the Assyrians by God's killing of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. All that is covered in chapter 33, connected to chapter 32, for there is no difference stated, relates to the one, to Hezekiah and Assyria, not to Babylon and Cyrus or some other king. And so, for, for a number of reasons, and some of which I'm going to share with you right now, we choose to set the context for Isaiah chapters 32 and 33 to be Judah under Hezekiah facing the threat of Assyria under Sennacherib and Rabshakeh. We choose Assyria and Sennacherib in the book of Isaiah because it was a threat, it was the threat that Isaiah had to deal with. It was the threat Hezekiah had to deal with. If you read 2 Chronicles 31 and 32 last evening, you are better set to understand Isaiah 32 than those sitting around you. I, I never give you a chapter to read that isn't for your profit. And 2 Chronicles 31 and 32 summarize very well what a great king Hezekiah was before Sennacherib came. That means the first 14 years of his reign. And after Sennacherib was sent away with shame of face, which was 15 more years of Hezekiah's reign. He reigned 29 years. He began reigning at 25. He only made it to 54 years of age, but he was one of Judah's greatest kings. And if you read 2 Chronicles, you got that loud and clear. We choose Assyria and Sennacherib for obscure prophecies in Isaiah because that is the threat that the king Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah faced. When we move 100 years into the future and go to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, approximately 100 years, when we see an obscure prophecy there, we assume Babylon. Because they're living 100 years in the future, Assyria is no threat. Assyria has disappeared from the earth because Babylon is the reigning empire. And there's these choices that we make when we look at Isaiah, it being different from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were contemporaries. One was in Jerusalem, one was in Babylon. They're writing at the same time about the same enemy, and that is Babylon. When we look at the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, we see a lot of emphasis on Sennacherib and Assyria. After chapter 40, we see more emphasis on Babylon and Cyrus because it's leading toward gospel prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are some of the difficult things that have to be done to give you a framework so that you and I together can understand the individual verses. The preceding context is the ruin of Sennacherib's army. If you look to the last two verses of chapter 31, it says in verse 8, Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited, and that's the sword of the angel of the Lord that killed 185,000. And so we have that right there, connecting right there next to chapter 32. We also, in chapters 36 through 39, they're just two weeks away. Four chapters with no prophecy in them. They are a recounting of the history of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, and Assyria in detail. They are a repetition of 2 Kings 18 and a repetition of 2 Chronicles 30 through 32. So we have a great deal of emphasis on Sennacherib and the Lord destroying the Assyrian army and sending it home and bringing about a phenomenal revival in Judah. It was a huge event in the eyes of the Lord. If you will look at verse 10 of chapter 33, and there are a number of places that we could look at. But verse 10 of 33, Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. Verse 13, Hear, ye that are far off, what I have done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. 
The Lord loves what he did to Sennacherib. Sennacherib opened his mouth too wide too many times. And so the Lord destroyed him for it, the blasphemer, and destroyed his mighty army and rescued his people and totally changed their outlook on life and their level of prosperity in dramatic form. And we've already covered it in the 31 chapters if you were paying attention. And so now we come to Isaiah chapter 32. Readers that know the Bible should realize that this is a huge event in the eyes of God and he wants us to know about it. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no church nor expositor of the 32nd chapter that loves the Lord Jesus Christ more. But we will not stick him where he doesn't belong. Right. We will trust some discipline in interpretation to stick with the situation at hand and not be trying to spiritualize every verse that we come to that has a word with a pleasant sound. If you look at the first verse, and because I'm doing all this in advance, because the first verse is going to give some people trouble, and the second verse is going to give some people trouble. Some of you are going to want to stand up as soon as I read the second verse and start singing that African-American spiritual a shelter in the time of storm. But we're not going to do it. You know, Ira Sankey took that song and altered it, its altered its words and gave it a new melody, a shelter in the time of storm, because of words that are found in verse 2. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. If you were to throw those words at me while I'm asleep in my bed, I'd say, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But since I'm not asleep in my bed... But I'm looking at Isaiah 32 and thinking about Isaiah and thinking about what is taking place in Isaiah's life and what the thrust of his ministry was. There's another king that fulfills it even better than me spiritualizing it. I could preach a series of messages to take from now till the end of the year on what a great king is that reigns in righteousness and apply it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would that make me a great seer? Or would it make me a man with loose prophetic discipline, loose interpretational discipline? And so I say all these things to you. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. Messianic prophecies should be quite clearly limited to him or be applied to him by New Testament writers. Those are two simple rules. When we read, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Could that be Hezekiah? Could that be Cyrus? Could that be King James I of England? I trow not. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's quoted in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. So in prophecies, now that's a simple one. I, I grant you, that's a simple one. I want to start with some simple examples. But we want to look for it being limited to Jesus. If it's not limited to Jesus, then it doesn't have to be Jesus. And if it's not used in the New Testament, we want to be careful lest we try cramming New Testament gospel into every chapter and every verse of the book of Isaiah. We've got 1,291 verses. And with a little effort, we could make each one of them teach the gospel of the New Testament. Men have done it before. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That ship without its tackling that we're going to end up with in the second service, that's the ship Arminius sailing on the sea of salvation. Can't, unable to get its mast up and set its sails. And so it flounders and gets no one across to the heavenly shore. We could do anything with any verse. But God has saved us from that kind of loose spiritualizing of the word of God. We want every verse that's about the Lord Jesus Christ that he tells us is about him. And he knows that when we're looking at a chapter like 32 that we've got questions. And so he leaves it vague enough that we can fulfill it with Hezekiah and not try to preach Jesus into verse 1. If we preach Jesus into verse 1 and then, to, then into verse 2, what are we going to do with 3 through 8? Who are the women that are brought up? Are these the Marys that accompanied with Jesus? In verse 9, they were careless and at ease. All of that 
is to try to help you. And I'm, I'm, I, hate, I hate spending the minutes on it because I want to get right into the text. But I want to tell you, when we come to a chapter like this, there are rules that we follow that keep us from just writing a novel about the Lord Jesus Christ from Isaiah chapter 32. If we cheat textual discipline, no matter how much we love Jesus, we are at sea without a compass or a rudder. We're in a mess. We're in a, a great deal of hurt. We thank God for the New Testament, and we let it be the direct main teacher about Jesus our Lord. We recognize that there are some chapters in the Old Testament that are phenomenal in their detail about Jesus, like Psalm 22, like Isaiah 53. But trust me, how far can you get in Psalm 22 before you know that it is only about Jesus? Here's its opening words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, yeah. I think we can find that in the Gospel of Matthew and other places and know that it's about the Lord Jesus. We get to Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. How do we know it's about the Lord Jesus? Because Philip opened the scriptures with the eunuch to Isaiah 53. We read from Isaiah 53 and it says that Philip preached Jesus to the eunuch. There's more that could be said and there's more that you can look at in what has been written about this chapter by your pastor. But let's, let's get into it. Let's get into the first four verses. Hezekiah reformed the state and the church. We have made a choice, and I'm going to back the choice up further in a moment, but we've made a choice that this chapter is about Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and the threat of Sennacherib and the Assyrian Empire, which has brought an army into the area and is besieging cities and took all the fenced cities of Judah. The first four verses. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. Amen and amen. Hezekiah reformed the state and the church. He reformed government and religion. And that's what we have in four verses here. We've already set the context. Let it be said again, we could make this Messiah and prove our loose use of the Bible. Any pastor worth his salt could preach for hours about rulers and Jesus being the best ruler ever. But is it necessary? Our goal is not to force Jesus into every verse. Was Jesus a king? Yes, indeed. Did he and does he reign righteously? Yes, indeed. Is he the only good king that reigned righteously? No, he isn't. Therefore, we are not limited to him. Therefore, the context of the men at hand and the nation at hand becomes important. If Jesus is the king here, who are the princes ruling in judgment? Aha, uh -huh, I know what you want me to do. You want me to run to the apostles, or would you prefer the church fathers? With the princes reigning, where are they called princes in the Bible? Was Hezekiah's reign following that of Ahaz sufficient for such language? Oh, yes. The king before Hezekiah was Hezekiah's father, and he was Ahaz. And his reign was terrible. He was a very, very wicked king, very, very corrupt, turned the whole nation over to idolatry, desecrated the temple, neglected the temple, locked the temple up. The first act of business when Hezekiah was 25 was to get himself a big pair of bolt cutters and to go down the street, you got to read about it, go down the street and cut the chains and the locks off the temple and assigned the priests and the Levites to get in there and clean that mess up. He started a revival. It was a huge difference. And so here comes the prophet Isaiah, who ministered under Uzziah, then Jotham, then Ahaz, 
than Hezekiah, pointing out that there is a tremendous transition from Ahaz to Hezekiah. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. Did that happen with Hezekiah? Indeed. And if you read 2 Chronicles 31 and 32, you saw it presented to you very clearly. Do you remember? Do you remember? The names of Eliakim and Shebna were the princes changed, were princes demoted and princes promoted. For those of you that read 2 Chronicles 31, the worst part of that chapter is you had to read about 20 names that you didn't really want to pronounce in front of your family. And that is because Hezekiah got the whole government and church back together again with princes of the Levites and priests and princes in his government to enforce Moses' religion in a great revival. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Hezekiah fulfills this. He was a great king, and he reigned in righteousness, and he changed the princes to rule in judgment, far different from how the nation and church looked under King Ahaz. We have, been, we have seen some prophecies, and we may turn to them if there's time, of a great revival that took place, and it's being described here from just a different angle by our prophet Isaiah. God had prophesied, prophesied and promised a revival of rulers. Look at chapter 1 of Isaiah. We had no sooner opened the pages to this book than we are told that the princes of Israel, were Judah, were terrible and that there needed to be a revival of them and new men put in office. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 21. How is the faithful city become an harlot? It's not a question, it's an exclamation. It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers. Now wait a minute, when did that happen? Uzziah was a good king. Jotham was a good king. Ahaz was a bad king. Hezekiah was a very good king. There needs to be a revival because of the state of government and church. Thy silver has become dross. Thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. We're going to encounter that in just a few verses. Everyone loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. If you just read that and then read Isaiah 32, you'll say, wow, this book is all tied together. I think it's written by the same author and it might even have the same writer. Good. We're making progress. But then as we're here in chapter 1, Look at verse 25. And I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross and take away all thy tin, the base metals. And I will restore thy judges as at the first and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, a king reigning in righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness because there's going to be repentance and a great revival under Hezekiah. And there's actually two of them. There's the first one by Hezekiah when he took office. And it lasted for 14 years, but it did not include the whole nation. Remember, they were still looking to Egypt for help. Remember, Shebna was still in office. Are you with me? There was a revival when he took office, and it was huge. And they had a Passover, the likes of which had never been held. But then God stepped in and poured his spirit down from heaven, the Bible tells us in chapter 32, and he forgave their sins, the last words of chapter 33, and there was another revival because God manifested himself to those people and he shook the hypocrites and the sinners in Judah to the foundations of their souls and they repented and there was a great revival. And Hezekiah was exalted before all the kings and nations of the earth and they brought tribute to God they brought tribute to God and they brought tribute to Hezekiah and he was very prosperous and had the abundance of everything. Oh, that is background. Here we go. You know, I, I, I toyed with the idea of running Cyrus through this chapter just to show you what I could do and that I doubt 
that you could gainsay me with a little bit of work. Was Cyrus a righteous king? Does the Bible call the Persians his God's sanctified ones? Have we already come on these things? Was uh, Cyrus God's shepherd for his people? Did God say, I will raise him up in righteousness? Oh, that's dangerous. Should we try FDR? And I mean that respectfully about one of our former presidents. But we have a context. We have a context of Uzziah, Jotham, wicked Ahaz, and righteous Hezekiah. And he was a great king, and he was a reformer. His entire ministry was reformation. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. We should give thanks for all rulers, but we should give greater thanks for good ones. The transition from Ahaz to Hezekiah was fabulous in its character, in, in the degree of it, and the godliness of the resulting nation. There are differences in all rulers, and it is also reflected in their princes. Look in Proverbs chapter 25, we have these words. Verse 4, Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Is that about Jesus, or is that a political axiom in general? It is a general political axiom that if you take away the wicked, like Shebna, and like the other subordinates and princes of Ahaz, you're going to have a reformation. And so the Bible teaches us these things. For any man in authority, are you using your office and subordinates for righteousness? Every father, every husband, every master on the job, are you a Hezekiah in the way that you prosecute your responsibilities? Are you a righteous leader? And do you cause judgment to stand by those that report to you? Verse 2, And a man shall be as in hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. These are similitudes. These are similes. Can you find the word as or like in this sentence? To have a simile, which means you're making a comparison between two things, you need the word as or like. Do you think we might be able to find one of those in this second verse? And a man shall be, there it is. And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. When there's wind that could blow you away, a good ruler is a place to hide. He's a covert to get yourself out of the weather and the storm. He provides rivers of water when you didn't have sustenance. And he's a shadow of a great rock in a weary land when you're tired from the heat. He provides a shadow because that is the ministers of God to us for good that are in our government leaders of all nations at all times, especially a good king like King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was those things. I am not about to break forth and sing to you a shelter in the time of storm. It is 619 in our red Trinity hymnal, but it is not about Isaiah 32 and verse 2, though it claims to be so at the top of the page. I hope you don't let simple things like that discourage your soul or cause you to think about heresy. This is Hezekiah. He was every one of these things. Is such language suitable for a mere civil ruler? Of course, if you remember what similes are for. Can one man make such a difference? He certainly can, especially as a godly king. Let me show you some verses. Look at Psalm 11. Psalm 11 with me. Let's thank God for our government. Let's thank God for our founding father. Let's thank God for our founding fathers. Let's thank God for our presidents. Let's thank God for our Congress, our Supreme Court. Do we have issues at times? Yes, but let's be thankful. The issues could be far worse and far more. Psalm 11. I love these political science verses. Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord put I my trust. This is a psalm of David. How say ye to my soul, 
flee as a bird to your mountain. For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the foundations there are government. If the foundations be destroyed, so that murderers, like verse 2, have freedom to chase David around like a dog, what shall the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Because we need a king that rules in righteousness. Like Isaiah 32 and verse 1. This is a tremendous passage about government. Turn from here to Psalm 75. Psalm 75. David was a king. His son Solomon was a king. I've quoted from Proverbs chapter 25. I've quoted from Psalms 11. Now I'm reading to you from Psalm 75. Verse 2. When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. What is another word for uprightly? Righteously. I will be a righteous king. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. Does that sound like they need a rock in a weary land? Are you with me, brethren? I'm trying to teach you the good word of God. I bear up the pillars of it. Who bears up the pillars of the earth that is being dissolved by bad government? David. David was bearing up the pillars of the earth. He was supporting government and living and life and nation and country and home and peace and tranquility. I bear the pillars of it because he's in a position of authority to execute good to help a people. A covert in a time of storm. Rivers when it's dry. Oh, it's just... You didn't know you were coming for some political science? And we're going to get political history in the second service because I'm just going to say the word Spanish Armada. And for those of you that know what happened to that Spanish Armada, the same thing happened to the Assyrian Navy. That should get your appetites going. I didn't know that Assyria had a navy. You wouldn't unless you read the book of Isaiah and got to chapter 33. Psalm 82. Psalm 82. I'm going to start at the beginning. This is the difference between good government and bad government. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. What is the congregation of the mighty? Kings and princes. Government leaders. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Those are not idols. Those are rulers. Those are civil rulers. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Stop and think about that. How long are you going to continue not judging and ruling righteously? Verse 3. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. That is princes ruling and reigning in judgment. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not. David's describing bad government. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. What does that mean? Does that mean that we went from 365 and a quarter days for a year to somewhere around 420 days? Because the foundations of the earth are out of course? No, it's government. Government is out of course because it is the foundation of the earth working like it should. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. That is a political axiom there. Psalm 82, Psalm 75, Psalm 11 tell you things about government that they are indeed a covert from storm and they supply and they are a shadow in time of heat. They are a tremendous blessing. And Romans 13 for the second time says that they are the ministers of God to us for good, which is what verse 2 is all about. Back to Isaiah 32. I wish that I had two or three hours for a chapter like this instead of one. Because the time is far spent, as the Bible says. Here we go, verse 3. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. 
This is not Jesus causing the blind to see. If you'll read the verse carefully, they already see and they already hear. They're just going to do it better. That is because Hezekiah brought about a, relig a revival of religion. It's chapter 28, it's chapter 29, and it's chapter 30. Three chapters in a row about him. And you read it in 2 Chronicles 31 and verse 4 last night that he required the tithes to be made to encourage the priests and the Levites in the preaching of the word of God. It says it that clearly. And so we have a reform reformation of government in verses 1 and 2. Reformation of religion in verses 3 and 4. Verse 4, the heart also of the rash, that's an impetuous, impulsive, heady man, shall understand knowledge. He'll learn some prudence. And the tongue of the stammerers, you ask them a question and they can't give you an answer. I don't know. And the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. There's going to be a revival of religion because there's going to be preachers everywhere in public. Do you remember what I've taught in the previous 31 chapters? That there would be a revival of religion and preachers would be in public and they'd have someone behind them saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. So they're all getting smarter. They're all getting better. They have answers. They know how to calm down and be prudent instead of being rash. It's a reformation of religion. And it's described in 2 Chronicles 31 and 32. And it's described in Isaiah 10 verses 20 through 23. And it's described in 28, 29, and 30. I got to go on. And I, I, it's okay. Just forgive my grief. Forgive my grief. I want you to understand it. I want it to be so plain. It's all plain to him that understandeth. That's why I want you to understand it. We're, we're, we're down to verse 5. Hezekiah reformed the character of the nation and its charity. Now, if you remember what I have read to you, from Isaiah chapter 1, this is going to fit perfectly. That they were greedy, rapacious princes. They did not care for the poor. They preyed on everyone. But not under Hezekiah. Not under Hezekiah. Shebna is thrown out and chased away like a giant tumbleweed. Remember? And Eliakim is put in his place. Verse 4, I mean verse 5, verses 5 through 8 is section 2. Hezekiah reformed the character of the nation and charity and justice is particularly under ob observation here. The vile person shall be no more called liberal. A vile person is despicable on moral grounds, deserving to be regarded with abhorrence or disgust, characterized by baseness or depravity. And that's what we read in Isaiah chapter 1. Verses 21 through 23. The vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. In a bad government, the good are called bad, and the bad are called good. And that is an up, that is a reversal of morality in a nation. And Hezekiah put it back the way that it should be. This is the way it was under Ahaz. This is what we read in chapter 1 about the terrible condition of Judah. Verse 6. For the vile person will speak villainy. They're out to hurt people. They're villains. And his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy, pretending that he has the interests of the people at heart and to utter error against the Lord. That means to disobey his commandments on how princes and judges are to conduct themselves to make empty the soul of the hungry when he should be making the soul of the hungry full and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The instruments also of the churl are evil. A churl is one who is sordid, hard, or stingy in money manners, a miser. The instruments also the churl are evil. Nabal was churlish because he wouldn't help David when he was in the woods. These churls devise wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. But the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. And that word liberal is not liberal in the sense of American politics. In 2019, that word liberal is generous. Generous spirit. And the, the liberal, under the reign of Hezekiah, devised liberal things. They were looking where they could spend more money for good to help the poor, to help the priests, to help the Levites. 
Did you read about the heaps? Did you read about what Hezekiah did to the nation? They restored all payment to the Levites and the priests and to the temple and all the sacrifices. And when Hezekiah went down to take a tour of the temple, he said, what are these heaps here for? Heaps of stuff everywhere because the people had outgiven the needs and and they had to build storehouses for the heaps. That is a nation under revival. People love to give in a revival. David on his deathbed, when he had given and all the princes of Israel had given abundantly as well, David on his deathbed prayed and begged for God to keep this thought in the imagination of the people's heart forever because he had never seen anything like it to collect for Solomon's temple. And so when we look at verses 5 through 8, it is describing the character of the princes and the character of the nation as being stingy. They're vile. All they care about is themselves. They're villains in the way they treat the poor. They don't care about others. They practice hypocrisy by pretending that they're in office to help. And they utter error against the Lord by doing it their way instead of his way. Because God was very careful, right down to little tiny things like gleaning, fe- gleaning corners in the fields that you harvested. And I have verses upon verses that I could turn you to, but there's no time for such things. Do you, do you understand that there are proverbs that you have been taught for years? The soul of the liberal shall be made fat. There is that scattereth, but it tendeth to increase. Godly men throw away their money. They never lose. David threw it away toward the temple. Why did he make Solomon pay for it? David did it. But the Bible says David died a rich man. He tried to give it all away, but he couldn't. There is that scattereth, but it tendeth to riches. And there is that withholdeth more than his meat, but it tendeth to poverty. And so it was in the case of Hezekiah when he took over the throne of Judah. And he changed things. And so verse 8 is just wonderful. Every benefactor that uh, writes our church or sends anything to our church, of the verses that I send them back, and there are some Old Testament and some New Testament, I include Isaiah 32 and verse 8. The liberal deviseth liberal things. Liberal men sit around imagining, daydreaming, where can I give some more money away. Too much savings is a sin. Too little savings is a sin. There's a difference between those two ditches. And we want to be in the crown of the road. And that is to throw money away. Liberal men sit around. Where could I give some of my money away? The Lord's blessed me. Who can I bless? But the liberal, I love this verse, deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. I will bless that man. I will protect that man. I will make that man great. And when he stands before me in the day of judgment, I will bring up everything he devised and every cent he gave. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Paul told Timothy, you tell the rich that they be ready to communicate, willing to distribute, and to be liberal by getting rid of their money and not to trust in those uncertain riches and lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Preacher, I thought the only foundation for eternal life was Jesus Christ. Well, you need to read the whole Bible, brother. Because the foundation in 1 Timothy 6 is a man that is just like this 8th verse. He devises liberal things, and he gives money away. And what a change in character. Can you read these four verses and see the change in character of the nation and their change in giving? Let's come to the next section. Much much more could be said. Do you know what Jesus Christ thought of the word Corbin? Corbin. I've put everything in, in my estate in a will to the church. I don't have anything for my mom and dad. Do you know what Jesus thought of that? That's speaking against the Lord. That's practicing hypocrisy. Jesus damned those people that did that. You have have made your own rules up and are not following God's rules. And for your own tradition, you're trying to worship Him. 
and on and on we could go. Nadab. I mean, uh, Nabal. Nabal, not Nadab. Nabal was one. How about Ahab? What did Ahab do to the vineyard of, in, in Jezreel? Naboth's vineyard. What did Ahab do? Remember Jezebel? Remember how wicked those people were and it was about stuff. About stuff. We don't want to be churlish. Churlish is stingy. Churlish is miserly. We want to be liberal. We want to be generous. We want to be scatterers. Verse 9, down through 14. Rise up, ye women that are at ease. Hear my voice, ye careless daughters. Give ear unto my speech. Many days and years shall ye be troubled, ye careless women, for the vintage shall fail. The gathering shall not come. Tremble, ye women that are at ease. Be troubled, ye careless ones. Strip you and make you bare, and gird sackcloth upon your loins. They shall lament for the teats, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars. Yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left. The forts and towers shall be for dens forever. A joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. Until... And I'll just, just say one word that starts the final section, and that's until. So when it says forever, it's not forever in the sense that you apply those words. I know, do you all know how, to, you, how you use the word forever? It took me forever to get home from work today. Do you know what you meant? Something less than an hour. Try the Bible sometime. There's 380 occurrences of forever. Context rules the length of forever. And this forever is until. <laughs> Notice I drew a line between 14 and 15. And it's not a period that ends verse 14. But it starts a new thought. And it's the until. But that's, that's a minor point. We're looking at some wonderful warnings to women. And then we had that in Isaiah chapter 3. Do you remember all the, the slides that I had on the various clothing items and accessories of women back then? And how the women today don't have anything over the women back then of 3,000 years ago. And so there's a warning here to women that are at ease. When you read Ezekiel 16 last Saturday for last Sunday's preparation, did you read that the iniquity of Sodom and her sisters was pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness in her daughters? Abundance of idleness and pride and fullness of bread. Here we have careless women, we have women at ease. Never before, and I'm sorry women, to, to hurt you with this information. Never before have women had it so easy as they have it today. I'm sorry to tell you that. I know you wanna think that you're enduring hardship that no one since Eve has ever had to face. But you have it easier. And I could go down through the long list, and you women ought to do that for Thanksgiving, that you do have just a few labor-saving devices around. Just a few. I know there's not very many. I mean, you can go online now, and Walmart and Bilo and Publix will just bring it to your house. That's if you don't pull in the back and they put it in your trunk. It's amazing. Sherry is buying a few things these days because of... No, don't look at me like that. Uh, Sherry's buying a few things these days because of a holiday that's a week or two away. And she's shocked that you can go online one day and the next day it's all in your house. You know, pretty soon the drone's going to be dropping it on the front porch. And by pretty soon, I mean probably next month. There's a lot of labor-saving devices. So ladies, when we read this passage, the women here were taking it too easy. There is a time to be grave and sober about life and to seek the face of God. You ought to be seeking walking with God, not enjoying comfort and not pacing yourself through life. Don't get up in the morning and figure out how you can pace yourself through the day to be comfortable. That isn't the goal of life. 
The goal of life is to be productive. Do you need to read Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 to find out how diligent and industrious that lady was? Because the Lord warns about women that are careless and women that are at ease by not fearing the judgment of God upon sin. It should grieve you to see what's happening to our nation. It should grieve you to see the threats against our children. It should grieve you about the wholesale compromise of churches around us. Rise up, ye women that are at ease. Hear my voice, ye careless daughters. And the warning is, verse 10, Many days and plural years shall ye be troubled, ye careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. See, it doesn't say you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. It says that a vintage is going to fail and a harvest is going to fail and you are going to be hungry. So rise up and repent. Seek the face of God. You women that gathered together on Wednesday evening and came together to encourage each other to expand your influence in the world and to be godly. The Lord arranged this passage for us right now. This passage for you women to see that comfort and ease and pacing yourself through a day is not the goal, but to examine yourself, to examine your family, and to repent, and to repent for the sins of our nation, and to live differently than our nation, because judgment must come. Put sackcloth on your loins in verse 11, instead of fancy clothes. The women are going to lament for the teats. Teats are what supply nourishment, whether it's a woman to her children or animals like cows. For the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, they're going to be lamenting. Their breasts are going to be dried up because they're not eating and drinking. Their cows' udders are going to be dried up because they have little to eat or to drink. There's going to be trouble. And so it's a warning. Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars. We've had this back as far as chapter 7 that God would send briars and thorns and ruin the agricultural society that Judah was, that their joy would be taken away, the palaces forsaken, the multitude of the city shall leave. That's a past participle of, of the verb to leave. The multitude of the city shall be left. That means they'll depart and be gone. The forts and towers shall be for dens. Sennacherib took all the fenced cities. Those are cities that had walls, and the walls had towers, and the walls had forts to fight from. And the city is a collective noun for the cities of Judah that were taken. And it comes down to until. It's going to be trouble and pain. And women, women, girls, life is not to have fun. The Lord gives us lots of fun. But work, work can be a great reward. But not just work. There is a, a spiritual mindset and a spiritual outlook and a spiritual examination of your, yourself, your children, the world, the music, the toys, the techno sins that are everywhere. Rise up, women, and fight the good fight of faith against these things. Don't relax. We live in the midst of the perilous times. And more and more of our children are going to go down. And our grandchildren, unless you women will rise up and repent and be godly women and virtuous and seek those things that are right and enforce them in your family as the queen of the household under your husband. You know, it got the princes. It got the priests and the Levites in the first eight verses, but then it gets the women. Everyone's addressed. Repent or else. And so we come until, to verse, eight, verse 15, which is the last section of Isaiah chapter 32. And I read it to you. The place is going to be ripped apart. Judah's going to be ripped apart, as we've read. Remember, the razor that was hired is going to come in there and shave them. They're going to be ripped apart. Fence cities taken. People terrified, men dying, not from legitimate battle, but being shot in the back as they run away, dying of famine, dying of betrayal. Verse 15, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest, then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field, 
and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation, and in sure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. When would all this happen? When it shall hail. Verse 18 doesn't end with a period either. When it shall hail, coming down on the forest, and the city shall be low in a low place. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters, that send forth thither the feet of the ox and the ass. You say, okay, Pastor, I'm looking forward to what these verses mean. Here we go. It's pretty simple. It's the revival under Hezekiah, and it's aided by God pouring out His Spirit upon those people and turning their hearts back to worshiping God and forgiving them their sins. Look at the last verse of chapter 33, the last verse of 33, and the last clause of it. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. God's going to pour out His Spirit and forgive them. He's going to bring them to repentance, and there's going to be a great revival. And it's going to be caused by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by works, not, not, not by power, not by might, nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Look back at Isaiah 10. Look back at Isaiah 10 and verse 20 so that I can remind you of this revival. There are a number of places we could turn, but I'm going to turn you to a couple. Isaiah 10, 20. Do you know that Isaiah 10 is about the Assyrian? Look at verse 5 just to help yourselves out a little bit. Okay, it's about Sennacherib. And he's the saw in God's hand. Verse 20, It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them. They're not going to trust in Assyria, which they had done under Ahaz against Israel and Samaria, if you remember, and Syria. But shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. There will be a revival. The remnant shall return, not from Babylon, the remnant shall return unto the mighty God. They were trusting in Egypt. They were trusting in Assyria, but now they'll trust in the mighty God. Look at chapter 30. Isaiah 30. Verse 18. This is the revival. And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. That was verse 18. Now verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. He's going to forgive the people and answer their petition, come to their rescue, aid them and prosper them by the, by the spirit of the living God. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. They'll be out in public. Then shall he give the, down to verse 23, then shall he give the rain of thy seed, that thou shalt sow the ground withal, and bread of the increase of the earth, and it shall be fat and plenteous. In that day shall thy cattle feed in large pastures, the oxen likewise, and the young asses that ear the ground, that means to plow, shall eat clean provender, which hath been winnowed with the shovel and with the fan. And there'll be water coming down everywhere. And the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun. The nation's going to have a total drastic change by the Spirit of God coming down under the reign of Hezekiah. How many of you fathers and husbands deserve the Spirit of God in your families because you are a leader and a lover and a, a husband and a father like Hezekiah was to the nation of Judah? Until the Spirit be poured out upon us from on high. I've just read to you the effect of the Spirit in the revival that took place. It's Isaiah 32 and verse 15. And the wilderness be a fruitful field. The Spirit's going to be turned about, poured out upon men to change their character, to change their conduct, like we read in the first eight verses. To bring up a king like Hezekiah. Ahaz was his father. Can you imagine what kind of training he got from his dad? Don't, I hope you don't even know who Hezekiah's son was. I hope you don't know. So I won't tell you that it was Manasseh. And I want you to know, the worst king of Judah was Hezekiah's son. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. Until the Spirit be poured out upon us from on high. And it was. 
God said, wait for me and I will be gracious to you. I'll, I hear you. I'm going to come to your rescue and I'm going to pour out every kind of blessing. So notice in one verse, we have a spiritual blessing of the change in character by God and the blessing of economics, the wilderness be a fruitful field. Wilderness yields nothing of value, but the wilderness is going to turn into a fruitful field and the fruitful field, what they thought was valuable, fertile property, will be counted as if it had been a forest in the past because it's going to bring forth bumper crops that they'd never seen before. This is, this is just reasoning of tremendous economic improvement. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness. Remember the judgment of verse 1? Princes shall rule in judgment. Judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. It won't matter where you are in the nation of Judah. If you're in the barren parts, call the wilderness, or you're in the fertile parts, call the fruitful field, righteousness and judgment will prevail because the whole nation's going to be under a revival. It's just fa This is what we want to pray for America. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. What's the result of righteous living? Peace. What do righteous men do? They always make peace. Anyone that complains or whines or sows discord among brethren is not righteous and there's no evidence they're going to heaven. A belief in Jesus is no evidence whatsoever of going to heaven. Righteous living and making peace is the evidence of going to heaven. It's the last two verses of James 3 if you want to read a New Testament version of it. The work of righteousness in verse 17 shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. How many riots do you have in a nation when everyone is living righteously? How many betrayals and treason and sedition do you have in a nation when everyone's living righteously? How many family feuds do you have in a nation when everyone's living righteously? This is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is what we want in our homes. This is what we want in our church. This is what we want in America. Lord, Lord, it's beautiful. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation. They won't be afraid of anything. And in sure dwellings, they'll be sure from any evil. Nothing will come nigh their dwelling place. And in quiet resting places, every night when they go home from work, it'll be a quiet place of refuge. When is all this going to happen? When will they have peaceful homes without fear? When will everything be at peace? When will they be secure and safe and sure? Verse 18 doesn't end with a period. When it shall hail. Wait a minute. Hail is not a good thing. Hail destroys crops. Hail destroys houses. When it shall hail, coming down in the forest. Forests are worthless. Who cares about hail coming down in a forest? Do you remember what I've taught you for 31 chapters? Who's compared to a forest in the book of Isaiah? The Assyrians. I'm going to lop off their bows, their boughs. I'm going to cut them down. When hail, when it shall hail, coming down in the forest. Are you with me in the reasoning? Yes. Hail's bad. Forests are bad. Bad hail, falling on bad forest. Who cares? This has got to be something dramatic. Oh, yes. This is God sweeping away the Assyrian army as with hail. Have we read that before? Only three times. Only three times in the previous 31 chapters. I'm out of time right now, so I'm not going to give you a Bible study on hail in the first 31 chapters of Isaiah. But I'm telling you what this verse is referring to. God is going to rain hail down on the Assyrian army, which would usher in this kind of peacefulness, because until the Assyrian army was destroyed and had run back home to Nineveh, 700 miles away, they couldn't enjoy those promises there of dwelling in peaceful, quiet places. When it shall hail, coming down in the forest, and the Assyrian army was compared to a forest of big cedars. Remember? Okay, I hope you remember. It's in several places. And the city shall be low in a low place. That is a similitude of a prophet to go along with the hail. What city is going to be really low in a low place? That means the, the lowest of the low. That means the low of the low. Nineveh. Sennacherib had to go back to Nineveh 
and tell 185,000 mothers, aunts, brothers, fathers, girlfriends, and wives that the captains and the mighty men of the army, he's not sure what happened, but they all died in one night. And we were only able to bring back a little spoil because the 185,000 men were each going to carry 70 pounds apiece. Do the math. And, and the Jews came out of Jerusalem and took it all away, which is chapter 33. Just hold on to that. The Jews made like caterpillars and like locusts. Have you ever seen a plant after a caterpillar gets on it? We haven't seen what locusts do. Verse 19, look at the when that opens verse 19 is explaining what needs to take place so that verses 15 through 18 can be all fulfilled. Verse 18, my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places. There's going to be quietness and assurance in verse 17 when it shall hail coming down on the forest. And the Assyrians have identified as a forest and the hail has been identified as God's sweeping judgment. And the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, would be low in a low place because of the terrible loss in the expedition of Sennacherib. But blessed are ye that sow beside all waters. And if you were paying attention when I was reading in Isaiah chapter 30, God would pour out water everywhere. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters. There's water everywhere now in Judah that send forth thither the feet of the ox and the ass. They are just plowing, reaping, making money, making food, piling it up. And if you read 2 Chronicles 31 and 32, there had to be whole new warehouses built to take all the crops and grain that was produced by Hezekiah in their revival. This is Isaiah chapter 32. Repent and trust in the Lord and look what he's able to do. Look what kind of government he loves. He knows political science better than any man. Look what he's able to do to economics. Look at what kind of peace he can give by driving away an enemy and destroying them. Women, rise up and be spiritually minded, grave and sober about your lives. Play your part. I've appealed to your husbands. I've appealed to the fathers of your children. Let us all conduct ourselves like Hezekiah and righteous women that we might realize the spirit being poured out upon us and protection and peace and assurance forever. May Jesus Christ bless the preaching of his word.